Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, December 19th, 2008. Christmas inches ever closer. Got some good email from yesterday's program. You know what? I'm... I don't think many people care about the whole Rick Warren thing. I, I think Good. I think I only got like two emails on that. You know, I got a lot of emails on the uh, on the what's the definition, the biblical definition of a good work. Oh, okay. I got a lot more emails on that than I did about the whole Rick Warren flab. Although, you know, I'll read and uh, today's show will uh, will read something from the Chicago Tribune. There was some language in the Chicago Tribune article about the uh, Obama Rick Warren flap that's going on, and um, it's a uh, <laughs> there's some wording in there that's uh, a little bit strange to say the least. All right, you're listening to uh, Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And our job here at Fighting for the Faith is on a daily basis to dish up a biblical dose of. Uh, a daily a daily dose of biblical discernment. There it is. A daily dose of biblical discernment. And the goal of which is basically to ask the tough questions. The Berean questions. Is what you're hearing uh, the word of God or not? And we defend uh, the historic Christian faith against false doctrine and error. As well as spend some time teaching what the, uh, what the historic Christian faith is all about. It's designed to be challenging. It's designed to be provocative and um, aggravating at times. So... Although what's funny is is that some of the people I've, – I've received some emails from people who are basically telling me stick to the theology and, and stay away from the global warming thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so anyway. All right. Uh, so today we've got listener email. We've got some news stories. Um, a Pew Research Forum, they did a follow-up study. I don't know if you remember um, back earlier this year there was a results of the Pew Research study on faith that uh, that showed that the majority of evangelicals uh, believed that there's more than that one religion that leads to God. And they did a follow-up study to see if maybe what evangelicals meant by that was by people in other denominations rather than people in other religions. No. <laughs> we were hoping, but it didn't turn out that way. And we'll do a little pit, uh, bit today. Uh, I call it uh, Prophecy by the Numbers. As we, uh, as we approach the blessed day of Christmas. It's good to go back into biblical prophecy and take a look at, you know, what are the chances of any one person fulfilling eight specific uh, prophecies regarding the Messiah that are found in the Old Testament. Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you want to see how uh, the apostles uh, defended the faith, so to speak, and proclaimed Christ. They did it on two grounds. One was eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of the dead by Jesus Christ. And the second was, um, was fulfilled prophecy. You know, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul used both of those, and uh, and so that was a, that was a common shtick that they that they used. In fact, I still think that that's a good way to go today. You know, if you're if you're going to do apologetics, and that is is defend the historic Christian faith and try to overcome objections, really, that's all apologetics is good for is just removing obstacles so that you can proclaim the gospel. But uh, if you've only got five minutes with a person, don't do apologetics. Get the give them the gospel. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, so. Uh, the idea of apologetics is to overcome certain things, but it's really interesting. Uh, somebody, um, there's a there's a book out there called I think it's called Science and Christianity, and it's an older book. I've had it for years, and uh, and the the guy in, in the book he breaks this down 
And uh, what's funny is, is you know, I had the book ever since I was you know a young you know, in high school, and then uh, when I took courses from uh, Montgomery and Dr. Rosenblatt uh, on apologetics, they referenced this argument, thought it was it was a valid one and it was a good one. And what's funny is, is that um, even Lee Strobel in his book The Case for Christ references this this argument, and it's it's a really good one. And so you know, we'll, we'll go through it. it's prophecy by the numbers, and then time con- you know constraints considering. Uh, we will uh, get to a bad sermon today. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to just start the weekend with a bad sermon? Uh, from uh, uh, from Pastor Chris Sonkson, or I should call him Life Coach Sonkson, because he actually has a, a business on the side where he comes in and he does uh, life coaching and, and corporate uh, motivational type speaking, and he's a pastor too. And uh, I think he should just drop the pastor thing and go with the other. He's far more gifted in that um, category. And we're, we're talking about uh, have, uh, you know, what, what happens when life throws you a financial U-turn. What do you do? I mean, that, that, isn't that relevant? <laughs> I mean, we're all experiencing financial U-turns right now. So anyway, okay. So email from Richard Watts. Richard writes, he says, uh, hi, Chris. I heard your talk on good works. First off, let me say thanks. You spoke with such clarity and understanding that I, that it was a real comfort to see the scripture employed to such good effect. Uh, you did a good work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, <laughs> he put that in, not me. You know, I'm not trying to be gratuitous. You know, but see, I mean, you got the guy from Australia who basically accused me of not doing any good works whatsoever, and uh, you know, and so it, it if and the reason why is because he doesn't understand biblically what a good work is. Biblically, what a good work is, it, it looks like a mom changing diapers. It looks like a husband uh, loving his wife and being faithful to her and caring for her and, and washing her in God's word. It, it looks like an obedient child. Uh, a good work. You know, th- these are what good works are. It, it, it's, it's the guy who dresses up in the suit you know, five days a week, gets on the road at six in the morning, fights the traffic into downtown, uh, parks his car rides the elevator upstairs, goes into his cubicle, and works. That's what it looks like. It looks like the fireman putting out a fire. It looks like a police officer patrolling. Yeah, that's what a good, th- these are good works. You know, biblically, you know, this is what they are. And so uh, if your definition of good works excludes your vocation, you've got a, sufi- a seriously suf- deficient definition of, of good works. Anyway, so let me continue with the email from uh, Richard here. He says, of course, if sola scriptura was abandoned, then finding such clarity would be utterly impossible. And by the way, that's what people are doing. They're abandoning sola scriptura, which I think is funny. You know, you know, you, know, you got somebody who so, you know, was so certain that I wasn't doing any good works and, and bold enough to lay it out on the line, but you know, he wasn't really employing sola scriptura. Where was he getting his definition of good works from? Probably the pulpit at his church. Mm, yeah. Probably. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So, uh, uh, which explains the con- the confused state we get uh, ourselves into on so many issues by not checking out what God's opinion is as revealed through the pages of Holy Scripture. Let God be true and every man be a liar. I was surprised that John 6 wasn't quoted, though I, I thought I'd draw pa- the, this passage to your attention. Now, he's bringing up a good point. Yesterday on the program, I spent my time really kind of talking about good works that flow from faith. But there is a singular good work mentioned in Scripture that Jesus tells us is a good work. And um, it's from... Uh, John chapter six verse uh, uh, verse twenty eight. In fact, let me pull it up in my 
in my computerized Bible. You know, and, and so, Richard, by the way, you know, bringing this to my attention is wonderful because, you know, actually I didn't get a chance to bring this up yesterday. And I easily could have, but it didn't come to mind. I was really more – I was being defensive, I guess. Is that what I was doing? <laughs> anyway, John chapter 6. We got this um, – Interesting passage of scripture here. And um, so here we go. When they found him, that's Jesus, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is verse 25, now now 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for uh, food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. So then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? There it is. All right, so you want, what is it What is it that we must be doing to do the works of God? All right? Jesus is going to give it to you, okay? Now, I want you to pay close attention. Jesus did not say, learn your purpose and live your purpose, okay? He didn't say that the work of God is to go out and uh, reduce your carbon footprint, engage in creation care, Stand up for the marginalized and the oppressed. He didn't. His answers were nothing along those lines. Nothing. Instead, we've got something completely different. Jesus answered them. He said, uh, "This." Uh, Jesus answered them, "This is the work of God, singular work, that you believe in Him who He has sent." That's it. <laughs> You're going. That's it. <laughs> seems like the purpose-driven life book could have been put on a fortune cookie instead. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, there it is. You want to know what it is to do the works of God? Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And who would that be? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> so there it is. That's, that's a good word. Jesus says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. You want to know how easy it is? It's so easy that you can believe. Just, that's it. That's the work of God. Okay, so Richard uh, continues. He's, uh, he, he spends a little time elucidating on this, on this passage. He says, this fits quite well with what you said, but oops, use the verbal eraser. I meant and. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> Got to be careful with those buts. He says, uh, this fits quite well with what you said, um, but it puts the answer as to what is a good work, believing, uh, being believing uh, on Jesus Christ. And in the Greek, in this passage, the word believe means to have faith in. In other words, to have trust in or as... Uh, or have faith, have faith. So good works of God, the uh, the good works of God is having faith in the Lord, which turns uh, turns will turns your will, uh, as you pointed out, leading to good works as defined by God. Since without faith it is impossible to please God, and without works faith is dead. I think that's the right way of putting it. So it makes perfect sense that the works are a sub, uh, consequence of having faith rather than a matter of human effort alone. Absolutely, and. Um, that's one of the problems in so much of the pulpit preaching right now is that pe- the pastors aren't preaching for faith. They're preaching for good works. And in, in so doing, by not constantly emphasizing faith and preaching for repentance and faith, are they really producing good works? It, I would say no. Um, what you have are a lot of people who have who feel guilted into doing good things, but it doesn't necessarily flow from faith. And so, you know... You know there's quite a few people out there who I think are confused on this matter. And, it's, and the, the reason why is because the emphasis in the preaching is in the wrong place. Preach for repentance and faith, 
and the good works that flow from that faith. You know, it's, it's a whole package rather than just preach for good works, which, you know, which is all the good advice sermons are anyway, are they not? Anyway, um, so thank you for the email, Richard. Absolutely agree. I got an email from Pastor Swirla today. He was asking if I had uh, seen the perfect storm going on regarding the Rick Warren and the Obama flap. And actually, I've been following this, and I think it's, it's kind of interesting. Rick Warren has got himself into a bit of a sticky wicket. And, um, you know, the pro-lifers are mad at, at Warren, and the gays are mad at Obama. And every ear now is waiting to see if uh, Mr. Purpose Driven, that's Rick Warren, um, will mention the name that is above every name on January 20th. You know, is Rick Warren going to say, in Jesus' name? <laughs> you know, I, I, I got a good friend of mine and she's, uh, you know, she's, you know, gone to war over this whole thing. She basically considers, uh, Rick Warren, uh, you know, praying at the inauguration of a Barack Obama as somehow Rick Warren putting his stamp of approval on Obama's administration. I, I don't personally see it that way, but I think it's really interesting. Everyone's upset. The left wingers are mad. The right wingers are mad. And, uh, you know, who's going to win? Rick Warren. <laughs> Somehow he's going to come out on top. So uh, that's how that works. But he, he, this is interesting. The Chicago Tribune, um, the way it's being covered there, uh, the, the, a gal by the name of Manya uh, Brackier, um, she writes for the Chicago Tribune. And this is an interesting uh, sentence that she writes, which is these, these kind of things make me really nervous. Uh, can Obama heal evangelicals without hurting the gay community? <laughs> Seeking to show both progressive and conservative evangelical Christians that he wants a purpose-driven presidency from day one, President-elect Barack Obama has invited Rick Warren to deliver the inaugural invocation. What is a purpose-driven presidency? Rick's next book? <laughs> this weird language here. You know, I, I remember reading you know, back in, in June the article that was written about Rick Warren in Time Magazine. He was on the cover of Time Magazine, and uh, maybe it was July. It was June or July, kind of late in that, in that area. And it talked about Rwanda being the first purpose-driven nation. This gal is uh, interpreting this, the fact that Rick Warren is going to give the invocation at, at Obama's inauguration. She's basically saying that that's a sign that Barack Obama wants a purpose-driven presidency? What does that mean? I, I'm i just kind of at a loss. I mean, people would be really freaked out if, if you know, if she interpreted this as, well, what's really happening here is, is a, uh, Barack Obama wants to have a Christian presidency. We, we would have some concept of what that means, right? And we, But what does it mean to have a purpose-driven presidency? I mean, this is, this is language that's foreign to my ears. I don't know what it means, and it creeps me out. I, I read sentences like that, and I go, Bleh. <laughs> you know? So anyway, <clears throat> there we go. Can Obama heal evangelicals without hurting the gay community? <laughs> I don't know. So you know what we should probably do is have some kind of a betting pool. I know gambling is not really encouraged among Christians, but we should have some kind of a betting pool as to, you know, what are the odds that Rick Warren will actually end his prayer with, in Jesus' name? You know, I wonder what the Vegas odds are on that. Or if he'll use the term purpose-driven in the prayer. He'll use the word purpose. Okay, I, I don't think anyone's going to argue against that. You know, somehow the word purpose will be woven into that prayer. 
you know, but you know, we, we should we should take some we should put some some kind of a betting pool together. You know, what words are going to show up, what words won't. You know, will in Jesus' name be at the tail end of it? Will the word purpose show up, and or will it be a combination of purpose driven? What will you know? <laughs> oh, Chris! I know it's like a sideshow, isn't it? <laughs> All right, moving along. Uh, here, here, here we go. Headline from uh, the Pew Forum: Many Americans say that other faiths can lead to eternal life. Most Christians say non-Christian faiths can lead to salvation. <laughs> you know what's funny is is that I think it's time that we start. You know, every year the president gives what's called the State of the Union address, right? Okay. Now I don't think that's going to happen this year because I mean, you know, about the time when you would normally have the State of the Union speech is uh, is the inauguration. So we we will not be treated to a State of the Union address in 2009. I think instead, what we'll probably end up getting is uh, is a uh, we'll get it in in 2010, right? But I think we Christians, it's it's time for us to have some kind of a State of the Union you know, address to to take a look at not the State of the Union, but a State of the Church. Let's we need a State of the Church address, and this would be the kind of stuff that should show up in the State of the Church speech, right? <clears throat> from the Pew Forum, a majority of American Christians, 52% to be exact, think that at least some non-Christian faiths can lead to eternal life. Indeed, among Christians who believe many religions can lead to eternal life, 80% name at least one non-Christian faith that can do so. These are among the key findings of a national survey conducted by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life from August 31st to August 10th, 2008, among uh, 2,905 adults that they surveyed. So this survey is designed as a follow-up to the Pew Forum's U.S. Religious Landscape Survey conducted in 2007, which reported that most Americans who claim a religious affiliation take a non-exclusive view of salvation, with 7 in 10 saying that many religions can lead to eternal life, while less than one quarter say theirs is the one true faith leading to eternal life. So uh, among all Americans, 70% of Americans believe that there are many paths to climb Mount Fuji, <laughs> the Bible of poor Richard Dahlman. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. So, and so, seventy percent of Americans believe that more than one religion leads to eternal life. Fifty-two percent—that's the majority. The majority of self-described Christians believe that more than one religion leads to eternal life. So, the majority. Do they say what other religions? Oh well, they listed things like Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism. And so, you know, of the uh, of the fifty two percent of the Christians who said that more than one religion leads to eternal life, eighty percent of those uh, cited a completely other religion. <sighs> okay, so let's continue with the story. Okay, but what exactly do these respondents have in mind when they agree that many religions can lead to eternal life? It is primarily an example example of most Christians who account for nearly 80% of the U.S. adult population acknowledging that some Christian denominations and churches besides their own can lead to eternal life. You know, for instance, I'm a Lutheran, right? You know, I, I know that might come as a shock to some of you because, you know, I hide my Lutheran <laughs> – my Lutheranism so well, right? I, I just blend. <clears throat> anyway – 
Um, so as a Lutheran, I would say you don't have to be a Lutheran, you know, you know, in order to go to heaven, you know, right? Yes. <laughs> Almost shocking coming. I, I know it's people are going no, it's <laughs> say it isn't so. You know what's funny is is yeah, I've heard many variations of that 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 joke. That goes, you know, that, you know, the, the, there was a Lutheran who died and went to heaven. Oh, wait a second. It wasn't a Lutheran. It was a Baptist who died and went to heaven. Okay. And so, uh, you know, Peter was showing him around the heavenly mansion and there was different doors, right? And, um, and so behind one door, you know, you, he, you know, before he, they even opened it, you can hear this ruckus going on. Right. And so, and, and they opened the door and it was, obvi- it was, it looked like a Pentecostal service in there. People were whooping and hollering and carrying on and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and the Baptist says, well, who are these people? And, and Peter says, well, this is where we put the Pentecostals, you know? And so, um, you know, there was another, uh, another door and there was, you know, there was some reverent worship going on, you know, mixed with some contemporary music as well. And, and he says, well, who are these people? These are the Baptists, you know? And, and, and they came to another door and he said, shh, be quiet. We just got to walk by this one. And he says, well, why? Well, he says, that's where the Lutherans are. And we, we don't want them to know there's other denominations here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, have you heard that one before? No, no yeah. No, okay. So, you know, here's the deal. As a Lutheran, listen, it's not it's not your Lutheran denomination uh, membership card that gets you into heaven. It's Christ and him crucified. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's trusting in Christ alone for your salvation that gets you in. That the gospel is not exclusive to the Lutheran uh to Lutheranism. I would say that the Lutherans do a good job of proclaiming Christ and him crucified, and I would say, you know, their doctrine, you know, if you really take a look at the uh the confessions of the Lutheran Church that are found in the Book of Concord. I mean, this is Christ-centered, gospel-focused, just really, really, really good, solid biblical doctrine. And so, you know, I, I subscribe to that. That's my doctrinal statement. It's a whole book. So, and I and I say that you know that's what I believe, and I believe that's what the the scriptures teach. And uh, and I in, in some denominations they have peculiar doctrines that are peculiar to their denomination some undermine the gospel some don't some have you know some understand the gospel and don't really make it front and center but you know so here's the deal any any anybody who preaches christ and him crucified you know it, the the hearers are, are going to hear they're, they're hearers who are going to hear that and god's going to make turn them into christians you know that's just how it happens so and it's not exclusive to um, the Lutheran Church, and I would even say that uh, because of the power of God's Word and the power of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit and, and the promises associated with that, that if you if you're a Catholic, if you're a Roman Catholic and you're attending church and you hear the Gospel, God can turn you into a Christian from that too. Okay, right. So this, I would say there's even Christians in Catholicism, but they're there despite their doctrine, not because of it. It's in spite of their doctrine, and it's almost like an accident, if you would. But you know, so. Um, you know, you, you don't have to be exclusively Lutheran to be a Christian, but I don't consider them to be other religions per se. You know, I would say that there there are different denominations are different. Uh, some in some cases they're either apostate or borderline apostate, and while others are healthy, and I you know I can shake their hands and say I you know based on your confession I consider you to be a brother. So there's a whole spectrum, you know, of things. You know, from from somebody, I would just have a simple disagreement to somebody who's aberrant to somebody who's full blown apostate. Now, you understand what I'm saying, but you know, you can't be a Christian and believe Mormon doctrine. It's impossible. You can't be a Christian and believe that you're saved by your works. You're not a Christian, period. So, regardless of what denomination you're in, believe me, I've run across Lutherans 
you know, who, who think that they're saved by their works. You know, it's like, we need to chat. So, but that's what happened here is, is that this Pew Research Forum, they had to go back and because the initial reaction to their, their survey results that were published earlier this year was, well, maybe what these Christians were saying is, is that they don't, you know, that they just believe that some, they were thinking that maybe people in other denominations, that those other denominations counted as a different religion. And, uh, well, this, the results of the survey proved that to be wrong. <clears throat> so we continue. The new survey asked those who uh, say many religions can lead to eternal life whether or not they think a series of specific religions, including Judaism, Islam, and Hinduism, can lead to eternal life, as well as, other, uh, as, well as whether they think atheists or people who have no religious faith can achieve eternal life. The findings confirm that most people who say many religions can lead to eternal life take the view that even non-Christian faiths can, uh, can lead to eternal salvation. Indeed, among Christians who say that many religions can lead to eternal life, 65% of all Christians, the vast majority, 80%, cite an example of at least one non-Christian religion that can lead to salvation. So 65% of all, oh my goodness, and fully uh, 6 in 10, 61%, name two or more non-Christian religions, even among white evangelical Protestants, nearly three-quarters, 72% of those who say many religions can lead to eternal life, name at least one non-Christian religion that can lead to salvation. This is a problem, folks. How is it that we've got Christians, Protestant Christians, that don't know their Bible enough to know that salvation is found in no one else except for Jesus Christ. I, I don't get it. But of course, then I'm in the minority, right? Literally, I mean, why should we even proclaim the gospel at all? I mean, we don't want to, we, we should stop sending missionaries to any other country proclaiming the gospel. What a waste of time. You know, if uh, if if Muslims can be saved and Hindus can be saved and and uh, and those following practicing Judaism can be saved, right? Then why even proclaim the gospel at all? Just leave them alone. Now these results are very very depressing and show that uh, we are at a crisis point in American evangelicalism in the in the church in in America today. Seriously, if you think that you can be saved or a person can be saved in, in, any, in all these other religions, you don't understand the Christian faith at all. You don't understand how it is that we're, we're saved. I'm sorry, but Jesus says there, you know, there's no other name given under heaven and earth by which men can be saved. Jesus says, unless you believe I am who I, who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. You can't earn your salvation, and God is not going to honor your religious practices to another deity a false deity, an idol, as and, and say, well, that counts as, as religion. You know, as I'll take that as somebody worshiping me because those people are basically good anyway. The problem is, there's nobody good, not even me, not you, not me, not nobody. We're all wretched sinners, and there's only the only salvation that is offered is the salvation offered in Jesus Christ to those who fall on their knees and beg for God's mercy, repent of their sins, and trust in the promises offered by Jesus Christ for salvation. There is no salvation in Islam. Allah is a false god. He's a demon idol. There is no salvation in current Judaism because it's all law-based and Christ is not in it. They reject Christ. Hinduism, I don't know if you've noticed that Hindus are killing Christians in uh, India. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but Shiva, Vishnu, and 
and all of their ilk, those are not real gods. Those are idols too. There's no salvation for Buddhists. God doesn't work off of some kind of a bonus merit system. You know, if you earn so many religious stars on your religious star chart that, you know, somehow you're in, you know, he, or he doesn't grave on a bell curve, you know, the, the good people in the middle, regardless of what religion they practice, the, those people are in. It doesn't matter if they're Christian, Jews, Muslims, or whatever. How is it that Christians are so completely oblivious to what the scriptures teach that they, that the majority of them, majority of them actually believe that there's salvation in other religions? Answer, bad preaching, bad catechesis. Folks, it's time, as far as I'm concerned, this is proof positive that we probably need to fire the majority of pastors and replace them with actual Christian pastors who are not ashamed of the gospel. It's time for us to have like a big cleaning. Yeah, okay, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, how, how can, oh, re, absolutely ridiculous. So there it is. Depressing news from the Pew Research Forum. The majority of Christians believe that there's salvation in all kinds of other religions. Anyway, so if you would like to uh, email me and let me know how uh, there's salvation in other religions and you uh, are in agreement that uh, somebody who's a good Hindu can be saved. By the way, there's no such thing. Um, email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. But they got a cute god or gods. Right. They're, they're cute. Of course. I like that elephant one. Yeah. Those are really whimsical. <laughs> <laughs> Email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com and we'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren... You cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, 
The mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I'm Chris Rosebro, your servant in Christ. Bemoaning the fact that the majority, majority, of Christians in America think that uh, there's salvation in other religions, like Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, just to name a few. Yep, the state of affairs here in the uh, Christian church in America is seriously in trouble. You know, seriously. It's time for us to draw some hard lines and say, nope, that's not what the Christian faith believes, and we need to proclaim the truth and not be ashamed of the gospel. I know it's really offensive to say, oh, there's only salvation in Jesus. But the thing is, is that uh, you're not the one responsible for making that up. Okay, Jesus himself said that himself, and of himself, and all we have to do is proclaim it. Okay, and if people don't like it, then tough turkey lips. Who cares if they if they like it or not, right? You know, we're not in a popularity contest, are we? No, no. Well, that, I know I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, folks, there is no other name given under heaven and earth by which men can be saved. Jesus is the only way. Period, and the only way to salvation is. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says that there's a broad road that leads to destruction and there's a narrow way that leads to life. What is that narrow path? Jesus is the narrow path. He's it. You know, it's so narrow, it's only as wide as the shoulders of Jesus Christ, right? Anyway. <laughs> okay. As we approach Christmas, something to ponder and consider is all the great prophecies in Scripture regarding Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about, uh, let's see, eight of them? Yep, we're going to give eight of them. Only eight of them. And I call this uh, prophecy by the numbers. Okay? And we'll do a little statistical analysis along the way. But, you know, by way of introduction to the topic, uh, before we get into uh, this uh uh, prophecy by the numbers. I want to. I want you to hear what Jesus Christ said about the uh, the Old Testament. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Jesus's uh, travels with the disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of his resurrection. Okay. Um, so here we we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Luke, chapter twenty four, starting at verse thirteen, and we're going to read. Um, you know, this, this wonderful account, just to kind of set up the story, uh, Jesus has been crucified. It's three days later. It's now Sunday morning on Easter morning. And, uh, the women went to the tomb and Jesus is not there. Okay. 
And uh, the issue now is, uh, where is he, right? Well, he, they, they hear from the angels that he's been raised from the dead. They go and tell the disciples. They come back, and sure enough, you know, the, the, the tomb is empty. And, uh, in fact, Jesus even had the, uh, you know, had the courtesy to fold up his, uh, his burial shroud. <laughs> Which, by the way, proves that uh, if it, 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 the, uh, when it comes to making your bed, the under the what would Jesus do category, he always <laughs> makes his bed. So that's proof positive. You didn't know that you can do it? No, sorry. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so we're, we pick up the story. So the, this, now the story is, is that two of the disciples are heading to the town of Emmaus, which is about a day's journey from uh, – from Jerusalem. So here we go. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that very day, it's Easter Sunday, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now that's important. Okay. It's not that Jesus was appearing to them in a different form. Um, it's not, it, it, you know, it's not like Jesus looked like Fred the plumber or something like that. Instead, it basically says that, you know, somehow their eyes were kept from recognizing them. It's kind of like a miracle, if you would, a kind of a reverse miracle. You know, Jesus gave sight to the blind for a temporary amount of time. He gave blindness to the sighted okay, so they couldn't recognize him. What verse again? That's uh, verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And as they stood still, looking sad, then one of them, then one of them named Cleopas, answered him, "Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days?" And Jesus said to them, "What things?" And they said to him, "Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel." Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our, some of the women of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who, who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But Jesus, they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's the important part. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So here's, here's the interesting thing. Okay, we got Jesus on the road to Emmaus, literally opening up the Old Testament and who is he talking about? Who is he saying that the Old Testament's about? Himself. Himself. Yeah. See, it's it's all about Jesus, man. You know, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So we've got Jesus here opening up the scriptures. So, you know, and he's teaching them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. And let me tell you, there are a ton of very specific prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus where he would be born, how he would die, really details about his life that he could not have control over. Okay. By the way, John, did you pick the town that you were born in? I, I did not. Yeah, me either. Torrance, California. I was born in Torrance. There's nothing sexy about Torrance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Josh was born in Redmond, Washington, which is where Microsoft is. And oh. he hates Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So anyway, um, in fact, my wife, she was born in Pasadena and the hospital that she was born in is right after she was born. They shut down the maternity ward. <laughs> you know, what does that tell you about my wife? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, San Gabriel for myself. San Gabriel. Okay. So there you go. See? Right. Yeah. Continuing on with the story. So as they drew near the, uh, to the village which they were going, he acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and, and the day was now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed, the, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It, it does. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's part of the communion liturgy, you know, the Lord's Supper here. And so he takes the bread and he breaks it. And then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And they go, wait a second, you're Jesus. And then whoosh, he vanishes. Yeah. <laughs> so what did they do? They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, right? Their hearts were burning within them. As Jesus opened up the scriptures, telling them about himself. And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered saying, The Lord has risen. Indeed, he has appeared to Simon. And they were told what, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Great passage of scripture. Now, let me read another one and I'm going to show you how this kind of bears out too. I made the claim earlier and let's take a look at Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13... Again, the two primary ways that the apostles proclaimed Jesus Christ you know, to be who he, you know to be the Messiah, to be God in human flesh, was the resurrection of the dead and fulfilled prophecy. And so, um, we uh, we have an example of one of uh, Paul's sermons that he gave while he was um, while he was on one of his missionary journeys. Uh, uh, Luke does us the favor of actually recording uh, one of Paul's sermons. And so we read, uh, we read about Paul. Uh, he, and let's see, after reading, okay, the, okay, verse, Acts 13, uh, verse 13, 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went out, uh, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his, with his hands. He said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of the people of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land and an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophets. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Notice what Paul's doing is he's giving just a quick synopsis of the history of Israel. In fact, this is not only a quick synopsis of the history of Israel. This is a quick synopsis of the, the Old Testament. Okay, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people. And John was finishing his course. He said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets 
which are read every Sabbath, fulfill, uh, Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. And though they, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And they had, they had carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God has raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. We bring you the good news that God, what God had promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, also as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what was Paul arguing? The resurrection and the fulfillment of the prophecies, right? So let's take a look now, prophecy by the numbers. We're going to take a look at only eight prophecies. Okay, and we're going to do a little statistical analysis. I did not come up with the numbers for these prophecies, by the way. It's from, a, you know, yeah, it's, you know, I think it, maybe the name of the book is Science Speaks. I'll have to look it up. It, it's an old book. I have it in my library at home. Anyway, so we're, we're going to do some numer- statistical analysis on eight prophecies. The first prophecy we're going to look at, and we, I we tried to pick ones that are very, very specific. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 5. Okay? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Regarding Jesus, we read about the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and from of ancient times. Okay? So you remember when the uh, when the wise men from the east came, you know, following the star, looking for the Messiah, the the one who was born King of the Jews. What what happened? Uh, Herod inquired of the the synagogue of the uh, uh, the chief priests, you know, where was the Messiah to be born? Well, according to the to Micah, the minor prophet Micah chapter five, Jesus, the, well, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So now I didn't get to choose where I was born, and we've already established that John didn't get to choose where he was born. Okay, so the, if you're going to do correct statistical analysis on this, and I'm sorry, we're going to do some numbers here. We'll crunch some numbers. If you want, you can actually write down the numbers. If you have a pad of paper handy, take down the numbers as I write them down. So you, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it's Jesus, you know, the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. And so the question is, um, one man in how many has been born in Bethlehem? So the idea is, if you want to do statistical analysis, out of all the people who've ever lived on planet Earth, okay, how many of them have been born in Bethlehem? Well, I'd say quite a few. Oh, right, exactly. There actually has been quite a few, and you can give a you can give a conservative number. And what we'll do is, with the number we're going to work with is two point eight times ten to the fifth power. Okay, just being you know, we're being conservative here. Okay, so basically quite a few people have been born in Bethlehem, but I would say the overwhelming majority of people ever born have not been born in Bethlehem, right? Okay, so moving along. Now we're going to go to Malachi. Malachi, it's not Malachi, by the way. You know, I've heard people call it Malachi. Some people trying to be funny and other people out of, you know... It sounds Italian. Yeah, (laughs) Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) Malachi chapter 3. Okay, now, in Malachi chapter 3, we learn of the Messiah, that God's going to send somebody who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, okay? Malachi chapter 3, 1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Um, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what happens is, is that uh, here we see that God says that he's going to send somebody ahead of time. Okay. And, uh, and you know, who's going to prepare the way before the Messiah. Right. And who was that guy? Well, if you believe the voice, you know, the emergent translation, it's, it's John the Immerser. (laughs) It's John the Baptist. Okay. Is the one who prepared the way of the Lord. Right. All right, so in fact, the, the New Testament quotes this passage in referencing John the Baptist. And, and who, who was he? He's the one prophesied by Malachi uh, that you know, he will send his messenger ahead of him. Okay? In fact, I wonder if I could pull that up in my cross-references real quick. Checking my computerized Bible. <laughs> you got to get that fixed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it, it's uh, Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 36. Um. Uh, we read about let me let me get the full context in this here. Let's see, show all text. Here we go. All right, all right. Regarding John the Baptist, we read um, of his birth. Uh, so, who was talking here? And what is what does your passage say? Who's talking here? This is kind of a. This is one of. Uh, it's Zechariah. Okay, here we go. So here's the story. You guys ready for this? The, the, in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, we read the story of Zechariah and his wife. They're old in age, and, uh, and, and an angel appears to Zechariah while he's doing his temple duty because he's of the tribe of uh, Levi and says that he's going to have a son. And uh, Zechariah has the audacity to question the uh, – kind of sort of doubt the angel. And the angel says, fine, you're not going to be able to talk until he's born. And um, so he's born, they ask, you know, he's circumcised, they ask what his name is going to be, and Zechariah says, his name is John, he writes it down, his name is John. And at that point, he's able to speak, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from all the hand of all who hate us. And to show uh, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our, our father Abraham to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve with him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. And you, child, referring to John, who is just an infant there, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go pre- uh, before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, so here Zechariah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is now quoting Malachi chapter three, verse one, that talks about how uh, God will send somebody to prepare the way of the Messiah. Okay, so I think that kind of pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. Yeah. My my uncle Zach was went to high school in Bethlehem, but that doesn't count. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) See me afterwards. Now, Jesus himself quotes this passage of scripture, too, by the way. If you turn to Matthew chapter 11, okay, just, you know, you want to get some more credentials? So you got Zechariah under the influence of the Holy Spirit referencing Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if you have any doubt as to who this is. But Jesus himself quotes this passage, okay? And so Matthew chapter 11, I'll start at verse 7, it says, And they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Well, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
Jesus, quoting Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, right? So here we go. We've got it, we've got it established. The first prophecy is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And the second is, is that, that, that the Messiah would have a messenger prepare the way before him. Okay, Malachi chapter 3. So here's the question. We're going to now take all of our people who were born in Jerusalem, uh, in Bethlehem, okay? And we're going to ask the question of all the men who have been born in Bethlehem, one and how many of them have had a forerunner that prepared the way for him? I think it, that starts it, to narrow things. Down, yeah. Narrow down okay. So I'm going to basically, we'll, we'll basically say conservatively, we'll say one in a thousand. Okay. Okay. We'll say one in a thousand or one times 10 to the third. Okay. All right, now we're going to move along here. Um, uh, so we're going to move to the next one, and that we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 9. Okay. Zechariah chapter 9. And specifically, we're going to look at verse 9, okay? Because this is a prophecy regarding the Messiah. And this prophecy was fulfilled on the day that Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem one week before he was crucified. Okay, and here's what it says. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which is even a little bit more specific. Okay, so now, so that's a very specific prophecy. Where was this fulfilled? On, it was Palm Sunday. Right. Okay. That Jesus' triumph, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay. He's writing as, coming in as a king. And when was Jesus coronated as king? On the cross. That's where he was wearing his crown, by the way. Okay. Um, okay. So now we, we're going to take our, we'll do a little more statistical analysis. Now, out of one in how many people who was first born in Bethlehem and also had a forerunner of those people, how many of them entered into Jerusalem as a king riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey? It's getting slim. It's getting slim. Okay, now we're kind of narrowing things down again. And I'll be really conservative, super duper conservative. We'll just say, all right, one in a hundred. Who's going to argue with me on that, right? Okay, we'll just say one in a hundred. Okay, I could be... I could be really tight with this and say it's one in a thousand or one in 10,000, right? But for our purposes today, we just need it to be one in a hundred, okay? All right, moving along. We're still in Zechariah. We're going to look at chapter 13 now. So Zechariah chapter 13, specifically, we're going to look at chapter uh, verse six, okay? Um, So this is talking about the wounds that the Messiah would receive, right? Okay, here's what it says. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. If one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Okay. So here's the question. Okay. One in how many uh, people the world over? We'll, we'll, we'll broaden this out. At this one in how many people all over the world has been betrayed by a friend and that betrayal has resulted in his being wounded in his hands. Okay. Actually, what's interesting, that's... Um, the wounds I was given to the house of my friends. Okay. All right. That's interesting that it's hands. Mm, yeah. Okay. We'll just say it resulted in wounds. Okay. Him being wounded. So one, one man in how many the world over has been betrayed by a friend, and this betrayal has resulted in these types of – in him being wounded like this. Okay. So we'll, quite a few people. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, betrayed by a friend and they've been wounded. Oh, yes. Okay. But so we'll, we'll say one in a thousand people ever born anywhere has had their friend betray them and they've re- and it's resulted in, in wounds like that, right? Oh, yes. Okay. So we'll, we'll do that. And staying in Zechariah, we'll look now back at 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Okay. I hope you guys are writing these numbers down. Okay, now this is where it gets really fun, because this is one of those really good prophecies, okay? Talking about Jesus' betrayal. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me the wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Where are we at right now? Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, okay? This is a prophecy regarding the fact that the Messiah would be betrayed for specifically 30 pieces of silver. So the question now is, of all the people who've been betrayed, one in how many of them have been betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver? It's getting slimmer. Again, getting slimmer again. Here we go. We'll, just, we'll be conservative. We'll say one in 10,000. How's that? Does that work for you? Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're still in Zechariah chapter 11, the next verse. Okay. Uh, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the, uh, the lordly price at which I was priced to uh, buy them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Okay. So this is interesting. This is a prophecy, not only about the 30 pieces of silver, but that the 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy a potter's field. Right. Okay. Which was fulfilled. Who, who betrayed Christ? Judas. For how much? 30, 30 pieces, pieces of, of silver. silver. And he threw the money back into the temple of the Lord because he felt bad about it. It was blood money. And what did they use the money for? To buy the potter's field. Okay. Which fulfills Zechariah. Okay. So the question now here is, is that one man in how many, after receiving a bribe for the betrayal of a friend for exactly 30 pieces of silver, has returned the money, had it refused, had it thrown on the floor in the house of the Lord, and then had it used to purchase a field from a potter? No, that's a low number. That's a. <laughs> this is not a common occurrence. No. Okay. I've, I've never seen that one. Okay. Oh, I've seen it. I've, I've read of it once. Yeah. Okay. But we'll be conservative. We'll just say, okay, one in a hundred thousand. Okay. That's pretty high. <laughs> it's a, okay. We're being conservative. Okay. Okay. We're being conservative because we don't actually have to be. You know, for the state case of statistical analysis, and notice here that Jesus isn't the one who caused Judas to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, throw it back, and then you know, Jesus could not have had a hand in, the, in, the, in what was going on here. Okay, now turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 5.3, verse 7. Okay. Okay. It says this, referring to the Messiah, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he he opened not his mouth. Okay. So here's the question now, statistically. One man in how many after fulfilling all of the above, the, the, the predictions that we've already talked about, the prediction that he would be born in Bethlehem, that... Um, that uh, so he was born in Bethlehem, that he had a messenger prepare the way for, before him, um, that he uh, rode in triumphantly into Jerusalem as a king on a donkey, that uh, that he was betrayed in, 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 by a friend who then led to these wounds on his body, uh, that, um, that he was betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver, that he was betrayed for that the, the person who betrayed him, the 30 pieces of silver, threw the money back into the house of the Lord, and then the money was used to purchase a, a field from a potter. Okay? 
So one man and how many after fulfilling all of those prophecies, when he is oppressed and afflicted and is on trial for his life, even though he's innocent, will make no defense for himself. Six. (laughs) (laughs) The whole world over, right? We'll give a conservative number again here. Okay. We'll say one in 10,000. So every 10,000 times this happens, one of them. <laughs> but do you understand what I'm saying here? Yeah. Okay. Then, I, like, I like six better. <laughs> you, you're going, man. It's, it's kind of getting crazy. You're thinking about it. It's like impossible for somebody to maneuver all these things. Okay. And now for the coup de grace. Yeah, the the last of the prophecies to consider just for this little exercise. And believe me, there's a lot more prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. We're just looking at eight very specific ones. Psalm chapter 22, fantastic psalm, which is a very interesting psalm because in it, it describes uh, death by crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented as a form of torture, right? My Bible says psalms. Psalms. Yeah. Your Bible's defective. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to look specifically at verses 16 through 18, okay? Here we go. So the, in this psalm, in fact, the, 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 this is an amazing psalm because it describes Jesus' crucifixion. Even before crucifixion was invented as a form of torture, we read um, Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow it over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is written 600 years or more before Christ. Actually, probably more, maybe even like a thousand, come to think of it. This is written a long time before Jesus' crucifixion. And if this doesn't describe Jesus' crucifixion to the T, then I don't know what does. And did Jesus you know, say, hey, by the way, once you put me on the cross, would you do me a favor and just would you cast lots for my clothing and you know stuff like that? And <laughs> no. All right. So here's here we go. Uh, so the question now is when you bring Psalm chapter 22, verses 16 through 18, the question is now one man and how many after the time of David has been crucified? That's all we need to do. One man and how many after the time of David has been cru- crucified? OK, now crucifixion is not a very common form of torture now, right? Back then. Yeah. But so you got to take into consideration all of the people who've ever lived since David penned this psalm how many of them have been crucified now i could be really 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 stringent here okay if i were to say one in a hundred thousand you go no that's too low right right i could say uh, well one in a million for every million people that have lived on the planet since david uh, one of them has been crucified you'd still say that's too low right yes okay but for the sake of argument here i'm just saying okay it's so common that only one it, it, that one person in ten thousand is is crucified. Okay, just for the sake of the numbers, I'm being ridiculous. I think you're talking gibberish. Okay, <laughs> okay, but we know it's not true, right? Correct. Okay, but the thing is, we don't even need to push it to its extreme. Okay, I would say that there's probably not even one person in in five hundred million that have been crucified since the time of David. Okay, it's just not a common thing anymore. Okay, there was a time when there was you know, that the Romans were. Pro- Let's say where they were very productive in their crucifixions, okay? But we're not product. They're not. There's no productive crucifixions going on now, except for in the Philippines during Easter time. Now, the people who voluntarily allow themselves to be crucified for a few hours so they can experience what happened to Christ. These people are nuts. All right. So, so what you do is you take all. Of, I'll, I can just say conservatively one in ten thousand, just to be conservative. Okay. Now this is where it gets fun. Okay. Okay. So, okay. I've read off all of these prophecies. All of them are amazing prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. 
that all point to who? Jesus Christ. And, you know, th- th- it's so clear. There's not, there, in fact, there's no prophecies on the planet that even compare to these. Okay? It, it, you know, it, you ever read, you know, those predictions for the coming new year, you know, that appear in, like, the Inquirer and crap like that? <laughs> it's... Oh, man. Yeah, we predict that this year that uh, a blonde woman will kiss a man on the lips. You know, it's really vague. <laughs> okay. Or after it happens, they see what Nostradamus. Yeah, exactly. Nostradamus' quatrains, good night. You know, the hister will, you know. Yeah. <laughs> after after it happens, then they like to go see what What's What I think is funny is, is that, you know, the Discovery Channel and the History Channel, they will have – you know, they have special – did Nostradamus see the future? And you, and you can't make heads or tails of his quatrains. You, you're sitting there going, I, I don't know. How do you interpret these things? It's kind of like what you read into it. These, on the other hand, they're nothing like Nostradamus's predictions. No, they pretty much say it right these out. These are straightforward, wonderful, clear passages that, about the coming Messiah and the things that would happen to him. Eerily so, but here's what we do: when you take all the numbers that I gave you, okay, for you know, the, and I was being conservative, okay, you come up with at the end of it, what is the possibility of one man fulfilling just these eight that I've listed? And when I'm telling you there are more, I'm talking there's a lot more. We're talking hundreds more, okay? Um, you come up with one man in uh, it's it's this ridiculous number. It's um, what is that number? It's so huge. It's like one man in uh, with one, two, three, four, five, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one, twenty-four, twenty-seven. It, one man in in one to the twenty-seventh power. It's like it, with twenty-seven zeros after it. Okay, a gazillion. <laughs> I don't even know what the number is. Is there a number for that? With uh, it's one with twenty-seven zeros after. You'll get an email. Yeah, I I know. It. There's some guy out there. No, you know, Chris. Actually, it's not twenty-seven. It was twenty-eight. You missed one. <laughs> and I'm so thankful for those guys, you know, because they keep me honest. Okay, so it's this huge number. It's it's like one man in one with twenty-seven zeros after it. And that's just with eight. And that's just with these eight. And uh, and I was being conservative, okay? Now, to, let's put some perspective on that. What does that number mean, okay? Well, let me give you an example, okay? Wh- what are we talking about here? That, I can't even comprehend that number, so let me give you something that will help you understand. Imagine if you would, if you could put a fence around uh, the state of Texas. Uh, you know, basically, take the state of Texas and you put a fence around it, and the fence has to be three feet high. So flatten the entire state of Texas, and then what you do is you put a build a fence that's three feet high, and now fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars. Okay, you know the, those Pocahontas dollars. You know, okay, with, they're not even silver dollars anymore. You know, with the Pocahontas dollars, and fill it three feet high. Okay, so you got the entire state of Texas filled three feet high with Pocahontas dollars. Okay. Now take one of those dollars and put an X on it, a red X. And then what I want you to do is I want you to drop it somewhere randomly into the state of Texas. And I want you to get a big spoon from space and then stir up the pot. Okay. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take somebody and blindfold him and give him some water because he's going to be wandering around for a bit and set him loose in the entire state of Texas. Okay. And that person now blindfolded has to wander the state of Texas and on his first attempt at picking a coin, 
reaches into exactly the right spot and pulls out the one Pocahontas dollar that has the red X on it. I'd say he's going home with the consolation prize. (laughs) And that's just with these eight prophecies. Okay, the statistical analysis on like 27 of them, the silver dollars go down to uh, actual atoms or electrons. And then the size of the the sample gets to like the entire universe. Okay, wander the entire universe and find the one electron that's been marked with an X. I mean, that's how – folks, ain't nobody nowhere – has these kind of credentials. The prophecies regarding Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in human flesh, who's come to be the savior of the world, to die for the sins of the world, to die for your sins and mine, that he is God in human flesh and that he is the prophesied Messiah. These prophecies are insane. And nobody, nowhere has these kind of credentials and nothing can explain this stuff. There's no way, I mean, evolution has a better chance than this. You know what I'm saying? So, anyway, God does not play dice with the universe. I mean, this this amazing stuff. So, uh, you know, that's there you go. That's prophecy by the numbers, and that's just eight of the prophecies, which I think is very appropriate to look at this time of year as we get ready for Christmas. All right, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to listen to a bad sermon. <laughs> it's true. Uh, not, well, maybe Chris will have some redeeming qualities to it. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on today's program, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. 
And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. We're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You know, every time I go over that those prophecies, it just boggles my mind. I don't know how anybody can say there's no there's no evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. You have to have your head stuck in the sand you, with with sunglasses and a blindfold on. And the Bible is a good reference. Yeah, history. that's right. It really no. The Bible's considered a historical document, and over and over and over again, the naysayers. Oh, the Bible doesn't have history, right? You know, somebody goes with a shovel into the middle of the Judean desert and digs up the thing they say that they didn't exist. It happens over and over and over again. You know, the Bible is a reliable historical document that gives us a reliable history of the ancient world. But it that's almost. Here's the deal. It's, it, that's really important. The purpose of the Bible was not to be a historical document in that sense. It tells the history of salvation history. It's the it's the crimson red thread of the Messiah, if you would. That's that we're tracking. It's that salvation history, the story of following the lineage of the Messiah, and the culmination, the the the, the crowning achievement of of the scriptures. The, everything that it's pointing to is God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. But even more more than just Jews and Christians believe it as a historical. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Smithsonian Institute being an example, they, they consider it a, a, a reliable historical source. Whereas the Book of Mormon, I actually have a document in my possession from the, the Smithsonian Institute regarding the Book of Mormon. And uh, the, the Roseboro's paraphrase of the conclusion of that document basically says the Book of Mormon historically is about as good as toilet paper. So, <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, brace yourself. We're going to do a bad sermon review because we just like torturing our listeners. Because that's, isn't that what we do? Yeah, that's what we do. That's what you do. No, I, it's not about torturing you guys. It's about here's the deal. When we do a bad sermon review, it's not because we're trying to do uh, radio where we're trying to you know be shock jocks or something like that. It's because in it, it, we can actually use bad sermons as an example of what not to do and and point us in the direction of what needs to happen. Okay, in, in your preaching. And and so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to um, a sermon by Pastor Chris, Chris Songson from South Hills Community Church in Corona, California, which is a purpose-driven church. This guy, um, Chris, is a, he's a motivational speaker. He's, uh, he, he's a good communicator. He's a likable guy. Just when it comes to preaching God's word, he, he's, he, he's just not to the task. So uh, this, this is called uh, When You Need a Financial U-Turn. <laughs> but I think we can all use one of those right now. So um, anyway, without any further ado, what we will do is we'll queue up uh, Pastor Chris Sonkson's sermon here on When You Need a Financial U-Turn. And we'll, of course, like we always do, uh, we don't do the, the same type of review that uh, Wilkin does, and you'll listen for Christ and all that kind of stuff. Although I'll be asking where's Jesus probably by about five minutes into this thing and where's the scripture. But, the, you know, so we'll, here we go. Hello, everyone. How you doing today? Great. I want you to grab your outline as we get into our topic today. Grab your outline. 
Ah, it's a topical sermon. We're not exegeting the scripture. I remember, you know what? Do, do evangelicals bring their Bibles to church anymore? Don't need to. Don't need to. Why? We got PowerPoint and we got the, these outlines and, and all the different translations they use will be. Yeah. yeah. I remember the day you actually, if you really wanted to track with a sermon, you had your Bible open or you, you, know, you had your Bible open and you had a notepad, you know, because you were taking notes in one hand and, you know, it, it was like going to school in a, in a way. Now, that's not what happens in the Lutheran church. We actually do homilies. But in Sunday school, you know, you can get extra credit to come to my class. <laughs> yeah, because nowadays it's 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 eight Bible verses, <clears throat> maybe not whole verses from yeah. eight different versions eight of the Bible. Bible verse fragments, eight Bible Bible verse uh, sentence fragments uh, from various and sundry translations, designed to uh, kind of steer you in the general direction, starting from the brain of the pastor rather than from the Word of God. Anyway, we continue. We started a series last week, uh, and we're ta- talking about running on empty, and we talked about relationships last week, and when you're running on empty in your relationships, and today we're talking about when you're running uh, on empty in your finances, when you need a financial U-turn. How many saw the stock, stock market this week? It was the lowest, the biggest drop ever in one week in the history of the stock market. Uh, thanks for reminding me. And so we're going to talk about that, that God's got a lot to say about our finances and the way he wants us to handle them. And so we're going to take a look at that. I want you to grab that. Uh, I had an interesting last couple of days. I was uh, getting off the freeway and I live right close to the, to the uh, freeway, uh, just about a mile away. I got off the freeway and I was, I was sitting at the stoplight getting ready to turn right uh, off the freeway, off the off ramp there. And my daughter, and my son were with me. And uh, we were sitting there, and all, the car in front of us would not go. It wouldn't go, and it wouldn't go, and uh, and it was clear as ever. The light was red, but you could turn right on the red, and uh, it wouldn't. You know, they wouldn't go. They wouldn't go. And so a few seconds went by, and the thirty seconds went by, and so uh, I lightly tapped my horn. You know, there's no way to Christianize a horn. It's true, huh? It's just, eh, you know, it's just obnoxious. And so I went, eh, like this, you know, tried to do it like this. I'm like, man, what's taking them so long, you know? And uh, finally they took off, and then they were going the same way I was going. So, and then they got in the left lane right away and turned right over there on 15 in Ontario. And I'm like, oh, geez, they're taking forever. And my daughter and my son, Dad, you're so impatient. Why can't you be more patient? Be more like Jesus, you know, this whole thing. And I said, I've been working on my patience. It's the last flaw I have. Then they, you know, laughed forever. Seriously, and so I, I'm heading up the street. Uh, the last flaw he has. He's perfect, except for that one thing. Yeah, yeah right. He's just joking, <laughs> I think. And I'm, and they're just, and they, and then we have to turn on another light, and they're taking forever. And so I'm like, come on. So I, you know, I couldn't help it. It was just right there, the horn, and and I got a little rav, so it's kind of one of those, eh, you know. And so I gave it a little eh, again, and then. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Finally, we got on a street where it was two lanes. We're, all, we're still going the same way. And I'm thinking, well, they must live in our neighborhood. As I'm flying by them impatiently, brutally, very non-godlike, and I pull up next to them, and I'm just trying to go right by them, and it is our next-door neighbor. Not, not, not a block away, not on the same coal. I'm, ta- I'm talking the next-door neighbor teaching his 15 or 16-year-old daughter to drive. And that's what was taking so long. I have been inviting them to church for the last two years. Well, I guess confession's good for the soul. 
I got out of the car and I was like, man, what do I do? I got to act like something, you know, I'm trying to make it up, you know, try to cover it up with a lie. Cause, you know, that's what God would lead. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? You know? And so I walked away. Oh yeah. yeah teaching your daughter to drive. Yeah. Uh, come to church. You go to South Hills. Yeah. No, not South Hills. Go somewhere else. You know, <laughs> don't come here. Uh, now life has, life has ups and downs. Life doesn't always go the way that we want. And neither do our finances. And we've been following that in history. Now, if you look back over the history of finances, right now we're in a very down time. Okay, it's starting to tumble. It's down. The stock market dropped more than it's ever dropped in in the history in one full week. And we've seen this happen. Do you realize 3,000 years ago, 1,000 BC, that there was prosperity in Israel? In about 300 BC, there was the fall of Rome. Okay, so finances were up. And then finances went down. About 400 AD, about 476, is when there's throughout Europe the finance. Is he tracking the history of the uh, Jerusalem stock market in the Old Testament? You got to be kidding me, right? <sighs> finances began to pick up, and in that region, in that area, and by by a, a thousand. A thousand AD, there was another depression that went down. In the 1700s, it went up and down. In 1800s, we experienced four major Great Depressions, one worldwide Great Depression. And then in the 1900s, we pick up, I got a little chart here for you. We pick up 1900s, and we pick up in 1908. And here's 1908. 1908. Okay, it starts off kind of 1900 in the, in the past uh, kind of uh, 100 years. And all of a sudden, everything was going good again as we came out of the 1800s. Then we had 1929, which was the Great Depression. It was actually a worldwide depression. Did you know that 11 people, 11 prominent businessmen committed suicide on, the, on what they called Black Thursday by noon? There was so much devastation financially that people were jumping out of the windows. They were so devastated by it. Okay, then the 1936, it goes back up. 1943, it goes down. 1972, it goes up. 1974, it goes down. Anybody remember using odd and even gasoline? You got to be old to remember that one. Okay. I remember it, but uh, what does this have to do with God's word? 1997, it goes back up a little bit. 2002 kind of drops down there. 1999 to 2002, we see a skyrocket. Everybody's making money from 2002 to 2006. Everybody got into the mortgage industry. Make quick money. Everybody was just rocking and doing world great. And then all of a sudden, the finances went down. And we see this happen. And matter of fact, you might have, uh, Raharam, I believe is his last name. He's a gentleman this past week who killed his three sons, his wife and his mother-in-law, and then himself because he was so depressed financially just this week in Southern California. And so we see this cycle of going up and down financially. Now, what do we learn in all of this? I mean, we've got to learn something. I mean, think about it. Three or four years ago, how many of you have ever remember you saying or someone else? I guess what I learned is, you know, that, what, how that song go? What goes up must come down. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Saying, I put my heart. wheel in the sky keeps on turning. You know, I don't know. What, <sighs> what does this have to do with the Bible? We are five minutes, 44 seconds into the sermon, and... Uh, you know what's funny is is that at, you know many Lutheran uh, sermons homilies is what we call them at the five minute forty four second mark you're probably a third of the way through the sermon okay and before we even got into the sermon you've you've had the word of God the gospel actually read to you and the sermon is on the uh, on the gospel text all right we continue.
house up for sale in two days. It's sold. Anybody remember those days? Yeah, you put your house for sale now and two days, everybody's still, nope, there it is. Flyers are all full. And because things have changed. Now, economy goes up, economy goes down. But the question is, what do we learn? Now, I have talked to a lot of people about their finances in the last six months. And over and over and over and over again, I hear people telling me this. Man, I have learned a lot. And I've heard 20 different things. But if I had to narrow down the top three things that I've heard, and I'm talking from people that fully are following God and people that are not, you know, Christian, in the church, outside the church, at the gym, wherever. I've heard three major things. It's on your outline. And I want us to take a look at those now. The three kind of major changes or three things that we have learned so far. What lessons have we learned? Number one, I want you to write this in. Number one, this is what I've heard the most. The top three things I've heard the most. Number one, we have mismanaged our funds. We have mismanaged our funds. The one thing that, a couple things I hear a lot, one of them is we mismanage our funds. I got so many people. And no, no word of God on this. Just that what we learned is that we mismanaged our funds. Don't need a Bible or Jesus to teach you that. Um, all right. And maybe you're in that boat going, man, I blew it. I was making so much money. I was raking it in, but I was spinning it as fast as I could get it on stupid things, on, va- on extra vacations and, and bigger cars and a nicer house and a bigger boat and a bigger TV and anything the kids want. And we mismanaged our funds. Did you know that American credit cards have reached an all-time high of $951 billion in debt? Credit cards alone. Woot. So we've mismanaged our funds. The second thing is this. This is what we've learned so far. I just want you to write these in, and then we're going to kind of get into the whole point of this message. Number two, this is what else I've learned, that, that people say that they've ignored God. Could you write that in? Number one is that they've mismanaged our fund. And the second thing I hear a lot is people saying that they've ignored God. Now, God, listen to me, folks. This is important for you. God The Bible calls God the Almighty, the Prince of Peace, the Counselor. Do you know what a counselor is? A counselor is someone that gives you what? Advice. Gives you kind of help, some guidance. The Bible calls God a counselor. He is a financial counselor. No one knows more. Oh, man, that's a leap of logic. Apparently, because God is referred to as a counselor, that that means he's a financial counselor. Ay, ay, ay. More about money than God. When Jesus was on this earth 2,000 years ago, one-fifth of everything he spoke about was money. Did- oh, jeez. Oh, Has he been listening to Rick Warren? One-fifth of everything that Jesus spoke about was money. One-fifth. Would you like an example of Jesus talking about money, by the way? It's higher for Rick Warren. Uh-huh. It's Rick Warren's higher. Yeah, Rick Warren was higher? Yeah. Okay. Hey, hey, let me give you an example of Jesus talking about money. <clears throat> or Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Uh, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice over me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Is that story about money? No, it's not about money. It's about sinners who repent. But Jesus told a parable about money, right? Right. The kingdom of God is like a woman who lost a coin. That's the, so is Jesus giving you financial advice? <clears throat> you know, let me find this one too, Pearl. Hang on a second. I got to, I mean, 
when someone says things like this, it, you got to challenge it, okay? Because if you know your Bible, as soon as somebody makes a comment like that, you're going to go, wait, 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 that doesn't make any sense. That, that, that doesn't sound right. Matthew 13, uh, we're going to look at verse 46, but uh, let me get the whole full story here. Uh, here we go. Uh, here, here's another parable. Of, uh, this is one about money, right? Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. But to his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, that's about money, right? No, no it's not. The money is the analogy. The reality is what it tells us about the kingdom of God. Here we go. In thirteen Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, uh, 1345, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Is that about money? No. No. What's it about? It's about Christ selling everything he has for us. Right? Ay, 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 ay. <laughs> Sound like Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Lucy. This, <laughs> something seriously is wrong here. Okay, I, I'm going to back this up just so we can hear that little quote again. Because, it's, folks, this is not biblical teaching. What he's telling, he's drawing some weird conclusions and saying something that sounds, wow, Jesus is a counselor. And Jesus spent, you know, one-fifth of the things he said was about money. Jesus was not E.F. Hutton. He, he was not a stockbroker giving us information on tips on how to, how to properly sack away our, mon, our money. Let's see. He is a financial counselor. No one knows more about money than God. When Jesus was on this earth 2,000 years ago, one-fifth of everything he spoke about was money. Did you know that money is spoken about more in the Bible than heaven and hell combined? God's got a lot to say about finances. All of the parables of, that use money are talking about the kingdom of heaven. They're not talking about money. And yet what I've been hearing from people, I'm talking 70, 80, a hundred different people giving me all their opinions. The top three things I hear. Okay. One is they've mismanaged their fund. But the second thing is they've ignored God. God says this about money. God's got a lot to say about money. God says here, here's how I want your money to be operated. And we have completely ignored God and all his principles and everything that he has said to do. We ignored him. Okay, even those that said they were followers of Christ, they ignored his principles in certain areas. Let's go to number three. Real quick. What's the principle uh, with the parable of the lost coin? To lose your money and go and find it? And have a party. Yeah. <sighs> quick. Number three. We have misappropriated our trust. We have misappropriated our trust. Now, I'm going to stop right there. This is a, that's a decent thing to talk about. Misappropriated our trust. Okay, trust talk is faith talk, okay? And we should be putting our faith in Christ, right? Correct. Repentance and faith in Christ, okay? So faith, trust talk is faith talk. Let's see what he does with this. How many here have ever done anything adventurous before? Okay, bought a house. That'd be adventurous in Southern California. Okay, I, uh, and I, I've shared some of the stuff I've done, but I'll never forget the time that I, that I did, I went bungee jumping and uh, I did it once and it looked really low from the ground. I looked up and I go, man, that doesn't seem very high. Have you ever done that where you jumped off a cliff into, into some water or something? I thought, man, it looks low, but then you get up there and you're like, dear God, you know, it just, it's huge. You're like high five in Jesus. You know I mean? You're that high up. 
And I'm up there and I'm like going, are you there, God? And God's going, you're on your own, dummy. You shouldn't be doing this anyway. And so I'm standing up there, you know, I get all the way up there and it's, it was pretty high up. And I remember standing there on the edge like this. And I remember, and, and, and I've told this story before, but, but to, they, they put this uh, thing around your, uh, a little bit around your waist, but most of it around your ankles. And they tie it and they do all this stuff, you know, and they get you all ready. And I'm standing up there like this and I'm getting ready to jump, you know, and my friends, are, and I'm scared to death. My heart is beating. My friends are down at the bottom encouraging me, jump, jump, jump. You know, people that wanted my job as the pastor, jump, come on, buddy, go, yeah, whoops. And so I'm standing there, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm up there like this. And I'll never forget, you know, there's a couple little things on me. When I looked at the kid, now the kid that was running, the, he was kind of the bungee operator. He was at best, at best, 19 years old. Yeah, that already made me nervous. Because I was like, dude, you're working part-time at McDonald's and part-time... You know, he's only made one allusion to Scripture at this point. And what he said about the Bible wasn't even accurate. We are now 10 minutes, 17 seconds into this, and he's exegeting a bungee jumping story from his life. It's pretty much all about him. Yeah, I think so. I'm on my life. And so... I said, uh, dude, I said, uh, is everything good? Oh, yeah, it's good. I'm going to jump. Just jump. You'll be fine. People do this every day, 100 times a day. Jump, 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 jump. I go, okay. I'll never forget it. I kid you not. I stand here with pure honesty. It's exactly what he did. I stood up there, and I go, are you sure? And he goes, yes. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. I said, are you sure? And I go, okay. I go, okay. Here I go, dude. I was scared to death. I grabbed the little rail here. I go, one, two. I kid you not. He goes, hold on, hold on. Click. And he goes, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I kid you not. I promise you as I stand here today. You know what I did? No. Now, when I go bungee, when I jumped in the bungee, man, it just kept going and going and going. And finally, you could feel the string kind of the, the, the thing. And then whoa, pulls you and whoop, it goes back up. And then it pulls you and whoop, it goes back up. And then pulls you up. And that's kind of the way the bungee jump works. And there, the idea is, the kind of the weird thing is, I'm putting all my trust in this dumb cord. It's the stupidest thing. We have, what I have learned from people, not only have they, they've learned this in the, in the last couple of years, man, I've mismanaged my fund. I have, uh, I have uh, ignored God and I've misappropriated my trust. Here's what's happened. A lot of people have put their trust in this. They've trusted the stock market, the real estate market, the housing market, the money market. And people are telling me over and over, you know what, Chris? I have trusted the money market and the housing market and the Dow Jones. I've trusted that a lot more lately than I've really trusted God. And here's the problem with it, okay? Everything over here, everything's going great. So you feel really secure. Then all of a sudden you feel real insecure and it's not so good. And boy, you're feeling beat up. And then all of a sudden you feel really good again, but then not so good here. And then you feel really, really good. And you're feeling high on the hog and God is alive. You're right here. Oh, he's all alive. And he's great. Yeah, we love him. Now all of a sudden we doubt him right over here. Okay, it goes up and it goes down. It's a roller coaster of emotions because we've misappropriated our trust. Now, here's the reality. Okay. Here's the reality about God. This thing's going to go up and down. Is the economy going to bounce back? Yeah. Is it going to go down again at some point? Yes. You can't count on it. No one has any idea what's going to happen on Monday, but let me read you a scripture. Hebrews 13, eight. I'll just read it to you. Yeah. All right. The first appearance of the word of God for real. Um, you say Hebrews 13, eight have to take a look at that so we can uh, make sure we can follow along. I mean, Hebrews 13, 8. Well, that's a, that's a positive start, right? Here we yeah, go. Bobby, you don't have to turn there. Just, just let me read it. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and 
and okay. Now let me show you what God's kind of Dow Jones looks like. Okay. Here's the difference. Everybody get it? Okay. This is all, this is all over the map, but God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm assuming that uh, since we can't see the visual that he has a very straight line. God doesn't go up and down. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can count on him. You can bank on him. He won't let you down. He'll always come through. He's not going to break like a bungee cord. He's not. Now, I, I got to admit, I like the fact that he's pointing out the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can trust him. But what, what are we trusting him for at this point? You know, are we trusting him for salvation? Uh, are we trusting him? What? What? Okay. Let's see. Not going to go click. He's not going to do any of that. This is what's going to happen in our economy. Do I believe in investing? Absolutely. Do I invest myself? Absolutely. But my trust, my trust should not be in all this mess. My trust should be in a God who created this universe and who is the same yesterday. Say it with me. He's the same Yes. And, and that's where my trust should be. Now there's a guy in the Bible. He, okay. Yeah. The thing is, he's not really explaining what that means. You know, trust in what context. Okay. So I'm going to trust Christ over the stock market. Okay. What, what exactly is, is the value of that per se? You understand what I'm saying? Okay, okay, so I trust Christ more than the stock market, but I still invest in the market, which means that, you know, in some sense I trust that the, you know, I'm I'm, you know, I'm I trust that the market is going to help make me money. Right? You know, the thing is is that the way he's describing trust and faith, it it really isn't telling me anything about faith. It's, okay, all right. So Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever, right? Yes. That's a, that's a true statement. But he's using this in contradistinction to the ups and downs of the stock market. Okay? So Christ is equal to the stock market. Well, apparently Christ is better than the stock market, but I'm just – from a practical point of view, what does this mean? Okay? I trust Christ for my salvation, and I trust right now that the stock market's in the tank. You know, you know what I'm saying? When we say we trust in Christ, it, it's in contradistinction to something else. I don't trust in myself. I trust in Christ. I don't trust in my own righteousness. I trust in Christ's righteousness. I don't trust that I can make my, I can earn my own salvation. I trust that Christ has earned it for me. Okay, taking the trust, the trust that we have in Christ, and the trust that we have in God. Okay, in t- making it in contradistinction to the ups and downs of the stock market. Okay, yeah, you can't. You, you got to be careful when you get in the market. You know, what, that's why they always say, you know, exercise caution, you know, that you could, you know, significant risk is involved and you could lose, lose all of your principal. You, you understand what I'm saying? So why, what exactly is the, I don't get it. I just don't get why, how this is even beneficial at all at this point, you know, because the, the two being compared, it, uh. He learned this lesson in a big way and he showed how to trust God. His name was Joseph. Joseph was a dude that lived about 3,000 years ago, about the time when Israel had prosperity in about 1,000 BC. And he was living in a tremendous uh, a time of prosperity. Now he grew up, give you a short story of it, he grew up with a bunch of brothers who didn't like him. They were a very messed up family. They were like the Osmonds. And uh, this is Joseph from the Old Testament. You know, Joseph with the, the Technicolor dream coat. 
I mean, the coat of many colors. Okay, so this is Jacob's son, Joseph, right? And it's his brother sell him into slavery. They're all messed up, you know, and they didn't like him. And you know what they did one day? They sold him into slavery. And he went off to be a slave. And he did good as a slave. And so he kind of gained a little, little uh, uh, you know, status in his, from his uh, master. And his master's name was Potiphar. Potiphar went on a trip one day. And Potiphar's wife came on to Joseph. So Joseph's sitting there in his little clubhouse or wherever he was hanging out. And, uh, and Potiphar's wife comes in and says, you know, do the hustle. And so there... Whatever, you know. And you know what the Bible says? This is the weirdest thing. The Bible says that his outer garment, she began to attack him physically. And, uh, and Joseph, it says in the Bible, no means no. No, uh, but, um, and then Joseph takes off running. He said, I cannot disobey God. And I cannot disobey my master Potiphar. Get away from me. The Bible says he took off running. She ripped his outer garment and his undergarment. They always wore like two robes. That would leave him what? That's the first streak in the Bible. It didn't happen at a graduation. Oh, man. Why is he doing stand-up comedy with the story? Not a USC thing or anything. But all of a sudden, there he is naked. Now, he gets in trouble. She claims rape. He goes to jail. He gets out of jail. And then all of a sudden, he starts climbing in status. He becomes the second in charge of Egypt. You know what this guy went through? This guy, Joseph, he went through all of this orange line. Things were up. Things were down financially. He went through a famine. This, this, is, this is a story of his financial status? How do you take the story of Joseph and turn it into a story about financial ups and downs? Ay. He, it got so bad that people were literally starving with no food, but then all of a sudden it was going up. But here's the amazing thing about Joseph. Never did it phase him. He was always steady. He always loved God and God always bailed him out. When everybody else was starving, his stomach was full. When everybody else's accounts were empty, he had money in there. Why? Because he made some choices. Here's what he made. What? Because he made some choices? <sighs> Maybe it was because he had faith. Yikes. He made choices that God was going to be the leader of his financial life. Now, no. Oh, man. I'm sorry, but the story of Joseph is not about finances. Good night. That is a terrible case of what we call eisegesis. This guy is literally reading into this text a financial story. Oh. I don't know a single biblical scholar, maybe there is one out there, who looks at it and interprets the story of Joseph in light of financial management. Okay, let me see if I got this straight. Joseph is a kid, right? Yes. His father loves him more than his other brothers. Other brothers right. Yeah, so we got some we got some favoritism going on there. His brothers can't stand him. Yeah, because he's the favorite. Right, and of course... You know, he tells his brother, hey, I had, brother, I had a dream. You guys were all bowing down to me, you know. Yeah. He's going to get the blessing. Right. <laughs> and so his brothers just say, enough of this man. They want to kill him, right? And uh, so, so he's in his father's house. It doesn't sound like he really owns anything in his father's house. He's still a young boy coming up through the ranks. His brothers, rather than kill him, sell him into slavery. As a slave, you own nothing. nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so when he was in Potiphar's house, he owned nothing. But see, this isn't a story about his finances. And then he's, and then he goes to jail for a long time, right? 
and and he gets he and even though he's there unjustly the guy, the guy in charge of the prison you know help lets him have a job he has a vocation and so as a prisoner he has nothing no. right no, no checkbooks in prison right and so apparently what we're supposed to then understand is is that when god finally has joseph ascend to being the second in command of all of Egypt under Pharaoh, that that's like the equivalent of him lose, winning the lottery, right? Oh. Look at that wealthy Joseph. Man, see? All those good choices he made made him money. Right. So we should go to jail and be somebody's servant. Right, I think so. Yes. Please go rip off a liquor store and go to jail. <coughs> So that God can make you uh, the vice president of the United States. And wealthy. Right. Because that's the example that we should follow. This story is not about finances. Here's the, here's the deal. I have talked to several people and they have said this. Boy, we've ignored God. We've misappropriated our trust. We, uh, we've, uh, we've mismanaged our funds. Okay. The, finance, the financial world, it'll bounce back. At some point it will. I don't know when. But here's the good news. Whether- okay, good news talk. That's gospel talk. The the euangelion, the good news. Okay? Gos- the gospel is good news. What's the good news? Christ died for our sins That's in accordance right. with the scriptures. He's buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. That's the good news, right? I bet you it's going to be law. Oh, boy. Here we go. Whether the economy is up or the economy is down. God has spoken about this subject, has given you incredible advice. He's known as the counselor. And if you and I would just follow what he says, when things are up, we'd be all right. But when things are down, most likely we'd be all right there too. You were right. That's all law. (laughs) Here's the good news. If you would just follow God's advice, whether you're up or down, you'd be all right. And the reason why you're down, obviously, is because you didn't follow God's advice. You know, I didn't do the ten simple steps. Huh? N- well, would you please tell me the biblical principle, the advice I'm supposed to follow from the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the pearl of great price? The uh. why? Because we followed His plan. God had a plan. He sh- uh, this is blessing based upon law keeping. And I think this is what he's saying is the good news yeah this is not good news oh man no this is not good news at all folks the good news is christ died for your sins this will not get you into heaven no and and here's the deal i i I guarantee you that there are a large percentage of people who quote applied biblical principles to their financial situation and they are still in a terrible financial situation because of this economy are we to conclude then that they just didn't obey enough this doesn't comfort me at all. This actually makes me feel miserable. Maybe the reason why well, the reason why I'm suffering financially is because I'm just not good enough. I just didn't apply the right principles. I didn't do enough good. I didn't get enough of the right advice and put it into practice. Right? Yet I guarantee you there are people in this market right now who paid their bills religiously. Month after month after month after month. And the house, the value of their house went down. And their husband, even though he, you know, say the the head of the household did a fine job at work week after week after week after week, was an outstanding employee, did the right things, paid his bills, was an outstanding citizen, even, even tithed. And it, he lost his job. 
and those people are losing their houses. Should we conclude then that those people who, quote, did these right things just didn't do enough right things? Not good news. No, this is not good news at all. Showed it to Joseph 3,000 years ago, and it still works today. What's God's plan? Okay, on your outline, let's go through it real quick. Here's God's plan for financial security according to Joseph's life and according to what the Bible says. No. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have not heard this part of the sermon, so I'm going to wager tithing is going to come into this somehow. Just, I got that feeling. Number one, write it in. First of all, you've got to honor God. Joseph was a guy that, uh, that honored God. This is all law. You've, number one, first step is honor God. Because Joseph, the story about Joseph is all about his financial ups and downs. I hope he tells me how to do that. Yeah. Me too. I mean, can you give me some practical steps on how I can do that, please? Through all that went on, he honored God. And God came to him one day and said, hey, Joseph, I want you. This is what I want you to do, Joseph. I want you to save all the grain you can. Okay. Grain was like cash. I mean, that was food. It was like cash. No, he that's, mm, that is not what God said to him. It was not his grain anyways. It was God was going to save Egypt through seven years of famine by giving them seven years of, of bountiful growth. Does this guy even read his Bible? Save all the grain you can. Look down with me. Okay, it says... As predicted, for seven years, the land produced bumper crops. During those seven years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain for the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain like sand on the seashore. Finally, he stopped keeping record because there was too much to measure. Here's what God was saying. Joseph, there's going to be a famine. And I've put you second in charge of Egypt. So gather all the sand or the grain that you can and store it. Okay, now, that was like money. Here's what God was saying. Joseph, I'm giving you all this cash, and here's what I want you to do with it. That's basically what God was saying. Now, Joseph could have went out and bought another boat. I don't know if they had those yet, you know, or an ark or something. No, he couldn't have gone out and bought a boat because if you understand the story, what happened is, is that the, the pharaoh of Egypt had these dreams that were absolutely disturbing to him, and he was looking for somebody that could interpret the dream. Whose grain was this? It was this was Egypt's grain. It's what didn't belong it didn't to belong him. to Joseph. He was just the manager of it. Good night. So that means if you work at at, at Seven Eleven, everything in the store doesn't belong to you. That's correct. Oh man, it can be if you just buy it all. But I don't know what <laughs> but you. But if would... you're just managing it, it doesn't belong to you. Apparently not. Oh okay. Um, he could have went out and bought you know whatever. Could have bought another house. Could have spent a whole bunch of money. No, he couldn't have. It wasn't his grain. Could have bought some more animals, get a really cool looking camel with some spinners on it. Anything. <laughs> he could have did all those things, but he did what God wanted him to do. He honored God. He honored God. The very first thing that God says, okay, you want to be part of my financial plan? Because you can, you can follow this roller coaster if you want, or you can live by my rules. Okay, you want to follow my plan, you honor me. Okay, what I say to do, you do. You honor me with your life. You honor me with your finances. And if things are really up, you honor me then. And if things are really down, you honor me then. Joseph did, and it worked for him. So it can work for you. It worked for him, so it can work for you. Really, the story of Joseph is about finances. 
Only on Planet Sonksen is it about finances. This is crazy. That'll work for you. You know, we are trying to teach our kids this. I found this a while back. This- are you even sure yet what he means by honoring God? I, I know. I haven't quite gotten that into focus yet. It's a little fuzzy and hazy. But mate. if I do that, oh, God. Yeah, oh. exactly. If you, see, if you honor God, he'll honor you. This is a, years ago, my son was only like seven years old. My daughter was maybe eight or nine years old. And we came out with this. This is, this is our little tithing, tithing box jar Tupperware thing it is. I told you. <laughs> And um, on the top, there's a scripture that says, God blesses a cheerful giver. There's another scripture we wrote on here. My wife wrote on here, bring all the tithe into the storehouse so there will be enough. Now, it's supposed to be there'll be enough food in my temple, but my wife wrote there'll be enough God in my temple. But anyway, seriously, it's on there. And, uh, and it goes on and on this scripture. It's really cool. And then it gives a little scale, like a tithing scale. If you make a dollar, a dime belongs to God. If you make $10, a dollar belongs to God. And we were teaching our kids to tithe. And I'll never forget when my son, we just, we just put this out. You know, reality is 100% of everything you own belongs to God. Correct. Yeah. God, God doesn't want 10%. No, he, he gets everything. Yeah, he wants it all. Right. And so um, and with that understanding that all of the money that you make belongs to God... All of it, okay. If if you need a good, if you need a car in order to make it to a new car in order to get to work, um, then God needs a new car, and you need to buy that using the money that God gave you, and be responsible with it, right? Yes. Okay. Everything belongs to God. Where the ten percent thing come from? It, 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 what they're doing is they're taking the Old Testament tithe and applying it legalistically to Christians. Yeah, but the tithe in Israel was like a tax. You know, it was mandatory, just like, you know, when you go and you purchase something, you got this, the sales tax, you know, on your Twinkies at, at 7-Eleven, um, you know, that 7% belongs to the state. The tithe belonged to God, you know, but under the theocracy of Israel. But they're taking this legalistic thing from theocracy of, of Israel and now applying it to Christians. You have to give 10% or God's not going to bless you and you're not honoring God. You know, the good Mormons do that too. Yeah, I know. But see, the thing is, is that we Christians have we have the freedom to give out of our hearts, out of our abundance, you know. And my question is, is that, you know, why would you limit yourself to 10 percent? I understand that 100 percent of what I own belongs to God, 100 percent. Anyway, we continue. And anything they got allowance, we would put it in there and then they would learn to give it to God. We're teaching them right now to honor God because it'll save them a huge headache in the future. But understand, we can't teach them something we don't model ourselves. So we model it for them, and then we put it out there. I'll never forget, they were at the Lake Elsinore. So in other words, in order for you to get through financial times, the way you do it is to first give 10% of everything you have to God. And then God will honor you and make it so that you get through all financial circumstances. The reason why you didn't get through these financial and you're having tough times is because you didn't tithe. You sinner you. I'll let long story short, my son comes running in and he goes, Dad, you ain't going to believe it. I go, what happened? He said, we were walking out of the parking lot at the Lake Elsinore Outlet. And he goes, I looked down. He's seven years old. There's a hundred dollar bill. He was fired up. He ran upstairs into some piggy bank he had, came down, put in $10 in here because that was his tithe. And he goes, okay, now where are we going? Grocery store? What's up next? He was ready, but he was learning to honor God. What was God, part of God's financial plan? Honor me. Let's look at the second thing. The second thing on the back of your outline was this. Here's the second one. Listen to God. The second thing is you got to listen to God. Okay, so first is honor God. And what was the point? Tithe. 
Yeah, number point number one, he snuck that one in there. Tithe. If you're not giving ten percent, you see God's financial plan and requires you to give exactly ten percent. Law. Yeah, law. And uh, now we're going to listen to God. And you have to do that perfectly. Yep. Otherwise, the law can't uh, exactly. save you. It can't even save you financially unless you uh, do this right. Does God grade on the curve on these principles of financials? No. So, uh, now, let me give you some stats real quick. The average, the average American owns 11 credit cards. The average couple has two car payments uh, totaling $792 per month. 85% of all people will retire with less than $250 in their savings account. And the average American checking account is $87. Now, it's not, now the problem isn't that we don't make money. That's not the problem. The problem usually is that we're not doing the right things with it. God says very clearly, over 2,000 times in the Bible, God speaks about finances. Why does God speak about finances? Because He loves you and because He doesn't want you to hurt. And so He just says, look, you can listen to the Tao or you can listen to the uh, economists or you can listen to me, the Creator. Really? So those are mutually exclusive? Where? Uh... Honor me and now listen to me. I've got some advice to give you. I got some things that I want to share with you. Now, what advice does he want to give us? Let's take a quick look. Okay, on your outline. First of all, I want you to write this in. Here's God's advice. Okay, and it's throughout the Bible. I want you to write this in. Act your wage. Write that in. Act your wage. Not your age. Don't bother doing that. Not at this church. Just goof off. Have a good time. Join me. I'm 90. Look at me. No, um, act your wage. You know what that means? That means to live inside of your means. That means here's this is great advice. And boy, do we need Jesus to give us this advice? No. (sighs) Any financial planner could tell you this, couldn't they? Yes. You know, it's funny. I've I've actually sat down with pagan financial planners who've basically told me if you want to retire with this much money, then you need to spend this much money and save this much money and. And uh, pagan, complete pagan. I mean, guy didn't know Jesus from a rock. Didn't care to either. And uh, But had some of the same advice, huh? Except for the, the, you know, I have to honor God first by by legalistically giving a tithe. And then uh, now we've got to act your wage. Boy, this is great sage biblical advice, isn't it? Yes. Here's the challenge I want to give you. That means to live at 80% of what you bring in. Oh, it's a specific percentage. 80% of what you bring in. That's a good rule. I'm going to go over that in just a moment. God, throughout the Bible, Proverbs 13 says, he who grows rich accumulates little by little. In another portion of Scripture, Proverbs says this. It says, learn from the ant who crawls on the ground. He collects and he saves. God is saying this. Live with inside your means. You're not going to be able to save. You won't be able to honor God financially like we all should be doing unless we can learn that this first thing is you got to act your way. Now, what does that mean? It might mean that you might have to trade up some cars. It might mean that you've got to change some of the housing situation. It may mean that you've got to change what you spend money on. It may mean that you've got to do less of this and more of this in order to do what you know you need to do. Act your wage. And I'm going to church to get this advice. Is he, is he a financial planner? Uh, I don't know. I, I bet he's not. Oh, okay. But, he, but again, this is uh, finances 101A. You know, don't spend. We, you know what? Uh, uh, 
friend of mine told me, I, I love this statement. He says, we spend things we don't need. We spend, things on, uh, uh, we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. Isn't that true? Yeah, and it's called sin. Why don't you call it that and call people to repentance and faith in Christ? That's true. And let me, I, I, uh, I have a, another friend of mine, he, uh, he told me this. He says, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. That's just living inside of your means. That's all that means. Act your wage. And the second one is, I want you to write this in, is save for tomorrow. Save for tomorrow. That means put aside some money, every single paycheck, and save for when this thing is going to un- undoubtedly go down again. This is advice from God. It's, it's advice, but it's not good news. Has he said anything about salvation? No. And he has, at this point, he's giving us good advice, and he he's not even telling people that you know, about their sins and their need of a savior for their financial sins, which would be a better way of going, but... Or Christ's grace. Or, well, see, the thing is, taught, it's law and gospel. You tell people about their sins and their need for a savior and they trust in Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God, the sin that's through Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness that's given us as a gift, and all these other things will be added, right? But... Uh, this, um, okay. One fifth of everything Jesus spoke about was money, more than heaven and hell combined, over 2,000. <sighs> we already went through this. That's just such a bogus statement. It just, bah. scriptures. God's got the ultimate plan. Act your wage. Save. <sighs> this is a sermon. Yeah, this is a sermon. God has the ultimate plan. Act your wage. This is not a seminar that he gives at his church. It's a sermon. No, this is a sermon. This was a Sunday morning. Amazing. So relevant, though, isn't it? For tomorrow, look what Joseph did. It says, and people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. God told him to do something with the the money, the grain, and he did it. And then God honored it. And people were blessed because he did the right thing. You know, the rest of the story, if you read the rest of the story, what happens is is that the famine got so severe that people didn't even have money to buy grain anymore, and they ended up selling themselves into slavery to the to Pharaoh in order to survive the uh, the famine. Were they blessed? They, they lost everything. <sighs> Yet God gave a provision, didn't he? Yeah. Save. Act your wage. Here's a, here's a rule that I just absolutely think is the greatest rule. Say it with me. Now, it's not a phone number or anything. You don't dial this and then get long distance for free or anything. But say it with me out loud. One, two, three, ten. Okay, I have taught this for ten years at this church because God teaches it. I tithe 10%, I save 10%, and then I live on the rest. I, I, I shared this with, I've been sharing at this church for years. You know, the guy that I had lunch with two weeks ago, he said he's been going to this church for eight years. You know, I don't recall the Apostle Paul anywhere, you know, giving a sermon on ten ten whatever. Do you? No. I mean, Paul does admonish us to work with our hands and to not be dependent upon anybody and, and have extra so that we can help the poor. 
before he had kids and he was married but didn't have kids yet, he said, you know, he goes, Pastor, he goes, you taught the 10, 10, 80. He goes, I started that rule. He goes, at that point, we didn't own a home. Now we own three. At that point, we didn't have any kids. We got two kids now and we're doing totally better than we've ever done before. He goes, and I'm not a genius. I just, all I'm doing is just doing what God says to do. Live inside of my means, save for the future and honor him. Honor him, save for the future, live inside of your means, act your wage. It's really, really simple. Everybody get it? Okay, you do this every day, whether things are really up or the economy really stinks and you do what God says. And you honor Him. And you live inside your means. And you act the wage. And you save. And you do what God says. Okay, the third and final thing is this. Third and final thing is this. Is you must trust in God. Okay, alright. We're to the trust part. Trust is faith talk. Let's see what he does with this. You must trust in God. There's a dollar bill right here. And I'm not going to give it away. So don't get your hopes up. No, so now I'm... On the back it says, in God we trust. That's a really cool statement. But you know what? A lot better than having it on our money would be really having it in our heart. I mean, really. Can we honestly say, where does most of our fear come from in these points? Where does most of our doubt and insecurity come from? Misplaced trust. Not in God that we trust. It's in this that we trust. It's in the housing market. It's in the real estate market. It's really, really it is. That's when we feel the most secure when our savings account's just right and our accounts are looking good and our mutual funds are looking good and, and we look at our house and say, boy, I just bought my house and it went up $180,000 like we were all saying three years ago. We're not saying that anymore. Boy, look at my house. It just went down $400,000. Yay. That's what we're saying now. But God says this, I want you to trust me. I want you to put your trust in me. For what? Trust him for what? Now, I... I love my kids and I want them to trust me. I was just telling my son a story. I said, the first time we learned to play catch son was on Lincoln Avenue in Corona and we were at a park and I was throwing the ball to you and you were trying to catch it and I, and you missed it. And I threw it a little hard, which I didn't mean to. I wasn't like, you know, and it went boom and it just busted. I mean, his blood started coming out of his nose. and He's like, ah, you know, screaming. I'll never forget. I ran over there. You know, I said, you okay, son? You know, yeah, dad. I said, would a Dairy Queen help? He said, yes, totally. You know, so... We ran into Dairy Queen and somehow miraculously God moved and everything was good. Now I've blown it with my son and I've blown it with my daughter. I love them. I've blown it. You know, I've, I've done things I shouldn't have done, said things I shouldn't have said, but I love them very, very much. I want them to trust me, but I'm human. Just today I was late to my son's game. I don't like being late to my Does that mean he's a sinner? My son's game, but I was. I'm walking up and someone was joking around me. Oh, look at the dad who's late again. Yeah, like, that's what I want to hear. You know, I've already got cats in the cradle going on in my head. I don't need to hear that right now. <laughs> and so there I am, you know, late as ever, you know, and it's just horrible. I'm going to let him down because I'm a human being. You know what? God is, help me out. Help me out. You might remember this. God is the same yesterday and forever. I'm still not sure what the point is yet. Do you, can you help me? Do you understand what the, the what are we trusting God for at this point? I, I guess money. Yeah. You know, so, uh, huh. okay, yeah, God t- takes care of us. He loves us, and He cares for us more than the sparrows and the bird and the fe- and the flowers of the field and things. But um, so misplaced trust. You put your trust trust in the stock market instead of God. So now I trust God instead of the stock market. Does that mean I don't invest? Well, 
what what is what is the nature of this trust that he's talking about? What am I trusting God for? He can always be counted on. God can be counted on. I know that uh, today is not the most whoa amazing you know deep topic or anything. That's a true statement. Because I, I I don't understand the dots he's connecting at this point. I mean it's it's a little bit underwhelming, you know. But I do believe it's a God honoring topic. I do believe that God gives us resources and God wants us to manage our resources appropriately. So here's my challenge to you. Where in this whole perspective are you wrong? Have you ignored God? Okay, okay, this, okay so I, this is sin talk at this point. Let's see. So where have you gone wrong? Okay, let's, is the, I guess this is sin talk. Here we go. Okay, over here. Have you totally ignored? If you have, you've got to change that. Well, I will when the bills get right. No, you won't. Do it now. You do you honor God now. Okay, save for tomorrow. Start saving. Live in your means. That means you might have to start slicing away till you can start living with inside of your means. But this is the greatest lesson. Because this is a nightmare. And it's going to always let us down. Sometimes we'll be up, sometimes we'll be down. But this is always the same. You can always count on God. If you are in any way not following God's financial plan for security, and you feel at times you're running on empty, step back. Look at what the Bible says. Follow his plan. Honor him. Trust in him. Put your trust in him. No, actually, you're trusting that if you do the right things, if you do the law, then God will bless you. It's a quid pro quo. This is not good news. In fact, it's not trust. It's really trusting in yourself to do the right things. You, you trust that the law is going to save you if you follow it, but you don't. He's not really pointing to the fact that people are sinning and that always amazes me. We live in a country where people believe God blesses them, but we don't believe God punishes them. You know, God always blesses, but he never curses. He never judges, you know, he will not let you down. You do that and God will come through. It's as a wage. You do the right things and then God will come through as a wage. And if you don't, then the reason why you're not being blessed is because you haven't done enough of the right things. Everybody get it? Good. Oh, I got it now, yeah. Let's pray. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> so, any gospel in there for real? No, he's bad news. Yeah, all bad news, even though he called it good news. So the good news is, is that God has a financial plan that if you apply these principles, then you will... If you keep the law. Yeah, if you keep the law, if you apply these principles, then you will, then, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, or whatever. And if you do these things, then God will come through for you. If you, if. Oh, that's, that law talk is always if talk. How, how do you do it, keeping the law? Perfect, uh, perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> we already went through that. Yes, we did. <sighs> yeah. You can't. You can't. I, ah, this is just aggravating. This is supposedly Christianity. And you know, and the reality is, is that you don't need a Jesus for this. You just need you. You need Jesus, the count, the financial counselor, which is what he turned him into. Turn the story of Joseph into one of financial management, rather than faith in, faith in Christ, which is really what it's about. God's the one who delivered Egypt, isn't he? God's the one who deli- who basically raised up Joseph and took care of him and redeemed him and 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 rescued him, even from slavery and from prison, right? Without money. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, all right. So there it is. That that was the 
the stinker sermon for the day. <laughs> Not nearly as – it wasn't as bad as Kung Fu Panda, but it really was bad. You know, and uh, folks, let me tell you this. These are tough economic times, okay? And um, there there are – let me put it this way. A lot of people think, oh, some some good people are being hurt financially. There's no good people, okay? <laughs> there, there ain't no good people. All of us sinners – you know, our it may be that maybe our sins have come to roost and collectively we're being judged. Who knows? I don't know. But here's what I do know is, is that trust in Christ is to seek first the kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that is by faith offered to us in the gospel. It is by faith that we are reckoned righteous before God, that God declares us righteous, clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, redeems us from the dead, turns us from a goat into a sheep, raises us you know, from death to life. And, uh, and as a result of it, we go from being enemies of God to being the adopted children of God. And God loves his children and he cares for his children. And Christ, when we look at anxiety regarding financial things, things of this earth, Christ doesn't point us to a set of principles that we have to follow. And if we do that, then God will, you honor God and do this and do that and do this and do that, then then you'll be okay. No. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That means to seek Christ first. And I can't promise you that things are going to get easy for you. I know throughout history that there have been Christians who have suffered great loss. The Apostle Paul has, you know, he learned to be satisfied in in when he had plenty and when he had nothing. He, Paul went shot the gamut up and down, right? The point is, is that our focus is on Christ regardless of the circumstances around us. And don't consider, you know, the financial problems that you're having right now as necessarily as God judging you for, the, for you not following the right principles. The reality is, is that if you trust Christ, Christ loves you, and you and sees you as his child and reckons you as righteous. And yet you're still going through this because that's gone through the will of God. I can't explain it. I can't even tell you for sure why it is we're going through what we're going through. But I do know that Christ is sure. I do know that his word is sure and that he cares more about you than he does about the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the flowers. Trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's to seek him in faith. And what do we seek him for? The forgiveness of sins. That's where he can be trusted. Forsake your own righteousness. Consider it as filthy rags. And instead, seek the righteousness that is offered in Christ. His righteousness is perfect, given to you freely as a gift. I know it doesn't sound like much of a financial solution, does it? But it is good news. But that is the good news that we have to offer to both rich and poor. Because we're all sinners alike. Anyway, that's our math. That's our program for the day. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard today, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until uh, Monday, God bless you.